Before we turn in uh, our scriptures this morning, I just wanted to say uh, congratulations to our uh, Mount Calvary Chargers boys basketball team. Uh, they won our league championship last night, so congratulations on all your, your hard work and, uh, and all the dedication. Yeah, we can give them a hand for that. So, and... And, and we are in the midst of basketball season. Uh, here at Upwards uh, Basketball, we're, we're on our final week. And, and as you re- recall from uh, previous sermons, uh, I'm, an, I'm an upward basketball coach. And, and uh, I, I used the example a few weeks ago that uh, we talked about how oftentimes we, uh, we, we, incur- we communicate to our kids only in the negative. And I, and I shared with you that my wife corrected me a few weeks ago on the court uh, that I was communicating very negatively towards my son of all the things that he was doing wrong. And, uh, and so I, I'm here to tell you, I, I think I've improved on that. Uh, but we're in basketball season, and Zachary plays basketball, and Haley plays basketball, and we watch a lot of basketball, and we've come to see the guys and the girls play basketball here at Mount Calvary. And, uh, and in all of those instances, whether it's at Upward or it's in, in sixth grade basketball with Haley, or, or, you know, I try to point out to my kids the importance of fundamentals, and one of the things that, uh, uh, that if you ask Kayla that I tell her all the time is use the backboard. Use the backboard. That, that's my number one thing that I communicate with. And the other thing that I communicate to Zachary and Haley, if, if it's not use the backboard, catch the ball with two hands. Catch the ball with two hands first. And so whether it's, whether it's they're playing and, and uh, you know, and, and so I'm encouraging from the sidelines, use the backboard. Or if Zachary and I are watching a basketball game, he'll say, hey, Daddy, he didn't catch the ball with two hands. And I'm like, no, but it's important we catch the ball with two hands. And, 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 and I do that because I want to reinforce the fundamentals. I want them to be faithful in the fundamentals. Well, this morning, as we look at, at our passage of Scripture found in Luke chapter 16, I think Jesus is calling us to be faithful in the fundamental of how we handle our money, how we handle our money. And if you're familiar with with the Gospels, Jesus talks about money an awful lot. And I think it's important that we handle money faithfully. Uh, It's a fundamental thing in our Christian life. And it's something that that we need to, 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 to to figure out and, and, and put in practice in our life. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 16. Uh, we're going to look at the parable of the shrewd manager this morning. And as we look at this parable, it teaches a simple lesson, but the parable itself is not so simple. Uh, you may have read over this parable a few times and scratch your head and say, what in the world is going on here? What's Jesus trying to tell us? And one of the biggest problems with this parable is at first glance, it seems to be that Jesus is encouraging us to be, uh, to be greedy, to pursue selfish gain, or maybe even unethical business practices. After all, you know, you know the, this shrewd manager is complimented. So, so what, are we, what, what is Jesus trying to tell us? And, and we know that that can't be correct. We know that Jesus would never encourage any of those things. So it's important we carefully look at what this parable says and doesn't say. And it's important as we look at it this morning that Jesus is using a negative example to make a positive point. 
He's using a negative example to make a positive point. And so as we look at our text this morning, the first thing we need to realize is is there's some spectators. Who is Jesus talking to? Who is in the audience here? And in the very uh, first few words of uh, verse 1, it says, Jesus told his disciples. Jesus told his disciples. Uh, In Luke chapter 14 and 15, Jesus has been talking to the Pharisees. And now he turns his attention back on his disciples. It's likely that this group has included some tax collectors who came to hear Jesus teach. We see that in Luke 15. And so there's probably some tax collectors there uh, who came to hear him teach and, and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So they're probably in the crowd. And these men who work with wealth would have had a natural interest in a story about someone's finances. And they would also need some solid spiritual instruction on what to do with money. And so those are kind of the spectators here. And now Jesus gets in and he talks and he tells them this story. And the first thing as we look at this story, we realize that uh, there is a manager accused of misusing the master's money. There's a manager accused of misusing the master's money. Again, in verse one, it continues to say, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Jesus is telling about a story about a business relationship gone bad. And this isn't an uncommon story in the business world today. An executive accused of mismanagement or guilty of misappropriation of funds or embezzlement or or mishandling the, uh, the company's assets. We hear those stories all the time when we turn on the news. This isn't something unusual for us. And, and here it's talking about a business relationship gone bad. And, and here in our parable, the manager was wasting his master's possessions. He was wasting them. He was not wisely using them, but he was wasting them. Jesus used the same word to describe how the prodigal son handled the father's inheritance. In, in, in Luke 15, it tells us about the, the prodigal son that he went off, he got his father's inheritance, and he went off and he squandered his wealth. It's the same word. And so the manager is wasting or squandering the master's money here. He has been entrusted with a task of handling uh, the household, and, and he was in charge of it all. And he wasn't faithful in that duty. And so we see that next we see a master arranges for an audit. All of a sudden, something comes to his attention. In verse 2, he says, So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. And so here we see the master rightfully understands what's going on here. And he calls for an immediate accounting of the assets to find out if the allegation of the manager wasting the money was accurate. So he calls for an audit. He says, okay, he says, I've heard tales about you, and and you're not fulfilling your duties, and so uh, we're going to check it out right once and for all. We're going to get to the bottom of this now. We're going to look at all what what you're entrusted with and see if you've been faithful or if you have been uh, at fault at handling the money. And and so if the accusations prove true, his employment would be rightfully terminated, in essence, he, this, this master would be Donald Trump before uh, The Apprentice, and he would say, you're fired. You're fired. Have you ever been fired from a job? 
I was trying to think. I, I, I've never been fired, but I, I remember at our last church, we had, we had a student who lived down the street from us. And, uh, and in summertime, she would spend a lot of time at our house. I'd come home from work, and she'd be laying on the couch. Uh, she'd, be, she'd be at her house playing with Haley, and, and she just, she just spent a lot of time there. And then one summer, she got a job, and so she wasn't around so much. She got a job at Rita's. And so she was working at Rita's, and, and uh, one of the benefits of working at Rita's, if you closed, you got all the, the ice, uh, Italian ice left over to, to take home for free. And so after work, she'd come down to our house, and she'd bring free Italian ice. And it was great. I mean, like, this is, this is awesome. We're, we're getting free Italian ice. And, and after a while, she started hanging out at our house a little bit more that summer than before. And there was no Italian ice. And, uh, and finally she said, yeah. I'm like, well, aren't you working at Rita's anymore? Or is you cut back your hours? She's like, I, I got fired. She was embarrassed by that. And I mean, she, she was a bright, faithful young lady. She, she is a successful career in nursing today. Uh, but how could you get fired from scooping Italian ice? I mean, it can't be that difficult, can it? But she got fired. And it's, it's no fun to get fired. It's embarrassing, and, and, it's, and it's not something that, that, that we look forward to. And, and you know, we, we can use that for our benefit and learn from it, or it can just be another long line of jobs we got fired from. And so here we see that the, the master is arranging for an audit, and if, if the charges for the, for the manager are true, he was going to be fired. And he deserved to be fired. And so then, uh, moving on in, in verse 3, we see a manager admits his mistake. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. Here we see the manager admits the accusations were accurate. He knows it's only a matter of time till the truth comes out. He was guilty. He was going to lose his job. He was going to be fired. He tells us the master was going to terminate his position instantly when the truth was found. And if he was innocent, he could continue on in the job, but he knew he was guilty. He knew he was guilty. He knew that his employment was coming to an end very quickly. And so he was left to wonder, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And rather than defend himself, the manager starts to determine what he should do Next, because his options would be limited. When he was terminated, there would not be a severance package. He, he would not get a severance package. His, his options of employment, I don't think he'd get a really great reference going to the next uh, uh, master's house and, and applying for a job of manager. Probably not a great reference. And back in this day, there was no unemployment to collect. So he was left wondering, what in the world am I going to do? And he says to himself, am I going to dig? He says, I can't dig. I can't dig. His, his desk job in fi financial management didn't translate well into manual labor. Uh, he wasn't looking forward to that. Uh, he, know, he knew he wouldn't have the stamina for the job. He was a white-collar worker, and he knew that he couldn't do a blue-collar job, that it would kill him. So he's like, I, I can't dig. And he says, and I can't beg either. He may have lost his job, but he was not about to lose his dignity. He still needed to find something so he could maintain his standard of living. And so he was thinking, what am I going to do next? 
what am I going to do next? I, I, I don't want to dig and I don't want to beg. And in verse 4, we see a scheme for survival. The manager's scheme for survival. And it says, verse 4, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Here, here we see, I, I say this, the manager had an aha moment here. He was worried about what he was going to do, and then all of a sudden he had this instant of inspiration for what he was going to do after he was terminated. And he was simply going to do this. He was going to de- decrease others' debts so he would be owed a debt. His, his aha moment was, you know what? While I'm still in charge, I'm going to decrease other people's debt so that when I lose my job, they owe me a debt. They owe me a debt. While he still had control of the master's books, he would reduce some of their debt. He needed to act quickly and quietly before the realization of his firing became public knowledge. And it's important to realize he didn't, he didn't eliminate all the debt, but he did reduce them enough to save them some considerable amount of money. The first example was he reduced the debt of 900 gallons of olive oil by 50%. You might say, well, how valuable was that? About three years' wages of a common worker. It's a pretty big, pretty big chunk of money that was uh, forgiven there. The second example was reduce the debt of 1,000 a, a bushels of wheat by 20%. And that was two years' wages for the average worker. And so he, he made some considerable reductions in, in these people's debt. And his hope was if he would do this, the debtors would be grateful and feel personally indebted to him. So when he was in need, he could come calling, and they'd remember, oh, you're the guy who saved me money. I'll help you out. In essence, he made friends with his master's money. He made friends with his master's money so that he could cash in a favor when he was out of a job. Now, it's important to realize here, before we go on any further, uh, that make no mistake, as clever as a move this was, and it was pretty clever, he, he was pretty ingenious, the manager committed financial fraud. He was wrong. It wasn't the right thing to do. The manager's actions speak for themselves. He was stealing money from the master, and it was morally wrong. There's no other way to kind, of, uh, to kind of phrase this. Some people say, well, you know, he was just giving up his commission or, or you know, he was actually now charging them what they really owed because he was uh, putting on top of that just some money so he could live comfortably. Uh, he was wrong. He was committing fraud. He was stealing his master's money by forgiving that debt. And so that was his scheme for survival. And finally, in verse 8, we see a master's Confusing message. It says, The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. The loans have been legally reduced. There was no way to recover those losses. 
The manager's deception made the master's announcement all the more astounding. I mean, he just lost a lot of money. So we're kind of, why, why, why is the, the, the master commending him here? It doesn't make any sense. The master couldn't help but admire how resourceful he had been for planning for his unemployment. And he was pretty, pretty resourceful. He didn't approve of his dishonesty or lack of integrity, but he acknowledged that he was very shrewd and credited him for being pretty clever. Now, there's a moral difference between saying, you know what, I applaud the crude, the clever, the clever steward because he acted dishonestly. It's different from saying that than from saying, I applaud the dishonored steward, dishonest steward because he acted cleverly. There's a difference there. The second one just basically says, uh, is what Jesus was saying. You know, I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly. I, I don't applaud that he was, you know, committing fraud, but you know what? Trying to survive, he, he had a clever way to do it. And I don't, I don't acknowledge his dishonesty, and I don't approve of that, but you know what? I got to give it to him. He was going to be out of a job, and it was going to be hard to find a job anywhere in town. And this was a pretty clever plan. He thought that through. Again, Jesus is not coming out in favor of fraud or claiming that it's right to cheat people. He's not saying dishonesty is the best policy. Instead, he was giving an example of how clever worldly people can be when they act in their own best interest and for their own advantage. And the most advantageous thing for us as Christians is getting ready for eternity. That's the most advantageous thing. And if only believers would give as much attention to eternal matters as they do to earthly business. Jesus uses this parable to set up some practical advice on how to use our position and our possessions for spiritual benefit, to make some wise investments for eternity. And Jesus is drawing an analogy between how the manager prepared for unemployment and the way believers ought to prepare for eternity. And oftentimes we don't really think about that. On our average everyday kind of how we live our lives, do we really spend a lot of time thinking about, am I preparing for eternity? Or just we think, am I just trying to get by? I just got to make it through this day. I just got to fulfill these responsibilities. But Jesus is encouraging us how to think about how are we preparing for eternity? And he makes some spiritual statements here. He, makes, he gives us three principles that I think we need to, to look at. And the first principle is in, in verse 9. It says, foster forever friends. That's principle number one, foster forever friends. Verse 9 says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I was thinking about this, and I was, I was remembering being in middle school and high school in the in the late 80s, early 90s. And, and I don't know, maybe it was just in our area, but uh, when it came time for graduation, the one song, didn't matter if you went to public school or, or Christian school, the one song that was in every graduation program and probably every graduation party was Michael W. Smith's Friends. And, uh, and if you're back from, uh, if you're a, ch- a child from that time or a, a student from that time, you remember, you can sing it along, right? And friends are friends forever. 
if the Lord's the Lord of them. I don't hear anybody singing. And and a friend will not say never because the welcome will not end. Though it's hard to let you go in the Father's hands, we know that a lifetime's not too long to live as friends. And they'd play this song, and and all these high school students would be in tears because, you know, um, high school was the height of, of... of life, right? It was the best days of your life, and it's all downhill from here. And what if we go to different directions? And, and what if I never see my friends again? And will I make any other friends? And so it was a real emotional, emotional time. But a lifetime's not too long to live as friends. Some of you are tearing up already. I can see it. Um, but you know what? Jesus wants us to use our worldly wealth to win eternal friends. He wants us to use our worldly wealth to win eternal friends. Those are the kind of friends Jesus wants us to have. He's the ultimate financial advisor. He's telling us to use our wealth and possessions for spiritual gain, to make wise investments that have eternal meaning and purpose. He wants us to use our money to make an impact for eternity. And this advice is contrary to the impulse of our consumer culture that that teaches us, hey, live for the moment. Don't worry about eternity. Live for now. And it teaches us that, you know, pursue material things and hope that they will provide some meaning. And we know that they don't. Because after you get something new, you want something else new. It doesn't provide any meaning. So this living for the moment and pursuing and using all our, the wealth for, for our own gain is, is meaningless because we never have enough. So Jesus says, hey, use your worldly wealth to win eternal friends. And if we wisely use our wealth to support God's church and the ministry of the gospel, when we enter eternity, we will have friends there because of that wise investment. We'll have friends there because we wisely used our money to impact eternity. And you might say, well, well how can we do that? Uh, you know, how can we do that? You know, uh, there'll be individuals there when we, when we get to heaven that, that we've befriended by, by giving in time of need. We can do that in a number of ways. The first way we can do that is, you know, these individuals are people that we see when we get to heaven that we've befriended by, uh, by giving to the, to the ministry of our church. We give to the ministry of our church, and, and as our ministries uh, minister to people and they come to know Jesus Christ, we have a friend in heaven because we faithfully supported the ministry of our church. So we've made friends for eternity because of our support of our local church. People in other countries who respond in faith to the gospel given by our missionaries or participants of mission trips that we prayerfully and financially support— when we financially give faithfully to our missionaries, we give to students who are going on, on, on summer missions trips, and, and they go and they minister and they share the gospel, and people come to know Jesus Christ, we've made a friend for eternity. We may, have not, we, we may not have gone, but you know what? We gave money so they could go. So we made a friend. We made a friend for eternity. Impoverished children or victims of natural disasters who have been helped through our support of Christian organizations like World Vision or Compassion International that just don't minister to the physical needs of people, but they minister to the spiritual needs. When, when those people come to know Christ because of our support, we've made a friend for eternity. Whether it's you sponsor a child faithfully, 
or you give to those organizations when, when natural disasters ha- happen, we make a friend for eternity. When we give to support the, the ministry of Christian organizations uh, faithfully like Cornerstone Community Ministries or, or Hope Within, when, when, uh, when they minister to other people and, and people come to know Christ, we make a friend for eternity. And Jesus is encouraging us to use our money for an eternal impact, to make friends for eternity. And you know what? We can do that at any age. And as adults, it's it's our responsibility to teach our kids this principle. That their money is not their own. And they need to use it for eternal differences, not for the latest iPod. But we, we model that with how we live our lives. It's not just enough to talk about it, but it's enough to, uh, we need to live our lives so that they see that we're doing that same thing. The reality is our worldly wealth will go somewhere. We can't take it with us. Can't take it with us. The only wealth that will endure is what we've invested in the lives of others for, for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And these are the kind of friends Jesus encourages us to make with our wealth. People who will call us friends when we enter heaven. We need to foster forever friends. Second point I think we need to keep in mind is faithful is as faithful does. You know, some Christians say they'd give more money to the ministry if they had more to give. But the reality is talk is cheap. Talk is really cheap. And we're great at talking a good game, aren't we? We're, we're, we're great at that. But, uh, but the reality is, if you want to see what you would do with more, look at what you do with what you already have. That's the reality. That, that's, that's the telltale. It's easy to say, well, you know what? If God would bless me with more money, then I will give. But you know what? Compared to everybody else in the world, 90% of the people in the world, we are rich. We are blessed. We have more than we, 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 could, we deserve. So what do we do with that? Are we one of those to say, well, you know what? When, when I get more, when I, when I get older, I'll give more. Faithful is as faithful does. Verse 10, it says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will will also be dishonest with much. And generally speaking, those who manage a little responsibility well prove they can be trusted with more responsibility. People who fail to follow through on small commitments don't rise to the occasion when they have something more important to do doesn't normally happen. They're usually just as irresponsible as always. The consequences are usually just worse. The stakes are higher. And the failure is probably more noticeable. Character is built by the little choices we make to keep our commitments. Character is built by the little choices we make to keep our commitments. Cutting corners in life compromises our integrity. Working, we're supposed to work as hard when people are not watching as when they are. We're supposed to keep our promises, fulfill our commitments, and finish what we start. 
Because people who are faithful with a little can be trusted with a lot. And nowhere is faithfulness more important than in the use of our money and material possessions because what we do with our money always reveals what's in our hearts. We all know Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Faithful is as faithful does. What we do with our money reveals what's important to us. And no matter if we have a lot or a little, God expects us to be faithful. He expects us to be faithful with that. And the point is that if we're unfaithful with something like small worldly wealth or money, God will not trust us with spiritual riches like sharing the gospel, like ministering to God's people, or even overseeing his church. If we can't be faithful in just in, in, in using God's money to minister to others, he's not going to entrust us with other ministry opportunities or responsibilities. And God's church. Martin Luther has a quote that I think applies very well with this idea. It says, Therefore, we must use all things upon the earth in no other way than as guests who travel through the land and comes to a hotel where he must lodge overnight. He only takes food and lodging from the host, and he says not that the property of the host belongs to him. Just so should we also treat our temporal possessions as if they are not ours and enjoy only as much of them as we need to nourish the body and then help our neighbors with the balance. Thus the life of a Christian is only lodging for the night, since we have no continuing city, but we must journey on to heaven where the Father is." So we need to faithfully use the resource God's given us to provide for our needs, but also to minister to other people, to help our neighbors. Because they too are just passing through this world. And hopefully by our investment, hopefully by our ministry, their eternal destination will be heaven. Because we have faithfully used the opportunities God has given us to minister for his honor and glory. Finally, the last point that I want to look at this morning is this. Follow the master, not money. Follow the master, not money. In verse 13, it's a very familiar verse. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You know what? You can't love and serve two masters any more than you can walk in two directions at once. It's not possible. Be interesting to kind of see that, you know, but, it, but it's not possible. And the reality is, you know, we teach our kids this idea from early on. If you ever watch kids, little elementary kids out, on the re- out, out, out at recess, uh, you see them play follow the leader, right? And, and you know in the game follow the leader, if you, if you want to, you know, if you want to be successful in that game, you got to pay attention and mimic the leader or you lose. And the same is true with our lives and with our money. We need to follow the leader. We know our leader is Jesus, and so we need, we need to put into practice what he tells us to do. And here he says, follow the master, not money. It's totally impossible to serve both God and money. There is no middle ground. 
will be, will be devoted to one and will end up despising the other. It's impossible to go in both directions. And Jesus took all that he had been saying about the faithful use of money and material possessions, and he kind of summarizes it here in, in verse 13. It says, Don't make money your master, but bring yourself and everything you have under the mastery of Jesus. And we'll never be able to exercise good stewardship unless we have mastered our money instead of being mastered by it. And, and, and that's one thing for us to, 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 to understand is, you know what? It's not our money. It's God's money. And we are just like the manager in this parable. He's entrusted us to use it. He's entrusted us to invest it wisely. He's entrusted us, uh, it's on loan to us. And he's entrusted us to do with it in ways, and use it in ways to bring him honor and glory. And, he, and Jesus knows the power of our possessions. And, and when he speaks about money here, he's using the word mammon, which refers to everything that we own. It's, it's our money, it's our possessions. And he, and he says, you know, don't be mastered by them. Don't let them draw you away from me, draw you away from my purposes by just kind of focusing on all your stuff. But use your stuff that I have given you for ministry. Use it to make a difference in people's lives. And we can use what God has given us for his glory. We can use it for our own foolish pursuits. And really, the choice is up to us. And it's a daily choice that we need to make. John MacArthur summarizes this verse by saying, Conflicting demands will inevitably produce conflicting emotions and attitudes. Those who love money will despise and resent what God demands of them regarding it. But those who love him will choose to honor him by not making earthly wealth their master. Instead of using it, it selfishly to gratify their desires, they will seek to manage the money he has entrusted them for the salvation of souls and the glory of God. So the question is, uh, are we mastering our money or is our money mastering us? Is it enslaving us? Now, are we so focused on the buying and selling of things that, uh, that we, we miss out on serving God with what he's given us? It's important to realize that as we talk about money, it doesn't mean that, that as Christians we can never spend money on ourselves. You know, we need to provide for our needs and for the needs that God has put in our care. And, and so that's being faithful to, to, to what God wants. And so, you know, it's, it's all right for us. To, to use God's money for our needs, but we just get confused on what's a need and what's a want. We've lived in America way too long, and our, and our view is skewed, and my view is skewed, because what we really need oftentimes is just something we want. It's just something we want. We don't need it to live, but we just like to have it. And so, you know, God says we can't spend money. It's, it's all right to spend money on ourselves for our needs. And this also doesn't say that Christians cannot be wealthy. You know, God's saying, hey, you, you shouldn't be wealthy. If God has enabled you to generate wealth, he has entrusted you to do more with that wealth than maybe someone else who can't generate it. He's given you more opportunities to use that wealth to make a difference for the kingdom. 
He's blessed you so you could be a blessing and so you could further the gospel. Jesus is challenging us to use our money in a way that shows we have the right eternal priorities. That we have the right eternal priorities. We can't buy our way into heaven. We know that. We know that that it's it's impossible to to buy our way into heaven. The only way that... that, uh, the, to, to get to heaven is to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He's the one that paid the price for our sins on the cross and rose again. And because of that, we can put our faith and trust in him. So we can't buy our way to heaven. That's, that's not what he's talking about. But I think what he's talking about here is genuine faith produces genuine obedience, especially how we handle the resources God has trusted us. So if we have genuine faith, we will obediently follow God in this area with our wealth and with our possessions. And if we don't master our money by using it for the glory of God, then it will master us and we'll end up bankrupt for eternity. We'll miss all of those opportunities to make a difference for eternity. And I think it's important for us to realize as we close this morning that what we primarily love determines how we practically live. If you, if you take away anything this morning, take away that. What we primarily love determines how we practically live. If we love money and, our posse- and possessions, then, then we'll be all about getting the latest and the greatest. But if we love our Savior and God has blessed us, And we'll be focused on how we can use those resources to help other people, to help spread the gospel, uh, to support other people that are uh, on the front lines all across the world sharing the gospel. If we can't go, maybe God has given us resources to help other people go. But what we primarily love determines how we practically live. Who's your master? If it's God, we'll be good stewards the money that he's given us. And if it's money, then we'll just waste it on foolish things of this world. And that's only a question you can answer. Who's your master? Father, thank you for this morning and the opportunity we have to look into your word and to to be challenged in the subject of money. And Lord, you know that uh, oftentimes... It's easy to be foolish with our money. It's easy to spend it on ourselves. It's easy to waste it in ways that, that don't make an eternal difference. It's easy to let our money control us and not control it. And Lord, my prayer this morning is that in my life and all of our lives that we would love you first and foremost. And because of our love for you, when you bless us with the resources, the possessions, the, the money that, that, that we have, Lord, that we would look, we would look for opportunities to invest it in eternity, to make eternal friends, to be faithful in whatever you give us, whether it's great or small. Lord, we have so much we know it comes from you. Help us to be wise stewards who use your resources for eternal good. In Jesus' name.
Amen.